and welcome along to the Red Star Radio Weekend Edition. Many of you, if you're attuned to the right corners of the internet, will have seen the uh, bizarre scenes coming out of Australia, which have featured on everything from your local Twitter feed to the uh, the Tucker Carlson show on Fox News. And many will be wondering what the hell is wrong with Australia. Uh, and so we have actually dived into thorough research and found a resident of Australia to actually speak to us today. And Layla, do you want to introduce our uh, guest? So we're speaking with Nicholas Hostdorf, um, who is a German li- writer living in Melbourne, Victoria. He's the author of the book uh, Psychogeography, Superstructural Berlin. Um, so thanks for joining us, Nicholas. Hi, thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, always good to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we were um, we were just speaking before the show, but um, Alina Lang, uh, I, I don't know if you guys knew each other from before or something, but the way that me, Alex, and Alina kind of learned about you, I suppose, together was through your review of uh, Benjamin Braddon's book, um, which we did a show on a few weeks ago. And we'll definitely be talking about some of the themes and some of the stuff you talked about in your review for this show. So it's kind of a nice, it's a nice way to link up, you know? <laughs> Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, no, I met uh, I, I I met um, uh, uh, Elena in this affair, but yeah, we, it's, it's, it's interesting. We um, one of the few uh, reasonable people that, <laughs> that are out there. I mean, <laughs> the, the, there's, there's strange things happening with people, as you you you, you may have um, yeah detected, right? <laughs> what, what well, certainly, certainly, especially the Australian people. <laughs> So maybe we can start with that. I think everyone outside of Australia is really keen to know what's really going on down there, down under. Yeah. So, I mean, the the mainstream media has more or less blocked out reporting on the um, on a lot of things with regards to Australia, but most particularly the protests and the police repression that I've only learned about through alternative media and Twitter. Okay, so first of all, are things as bad as they seem? Or is this just a, you know, isolated events? Like what's, what's really going on on the ground? Yeah. Um, I, well, first of all, it's, it, it's very, um, it's, it's difficult to say if, if they're, you know, how bad they are, because I think things are quite bad everywhere. Right. Um, yeah. So um, it's definitely very, very serious here. Um, and mm. uh, I, I think I need to qualify it. Um, yeah, there's uh, demonstrations are forbidden. There's absolute, uh, um, you know, police control over the city. That is incredible. Like that, there's in Melbourne is a, a city that has a sort of very tight um, and dense CBD central business district, and so this uh, this place is just uh, full of police. Hundreds of police officers you would pass. And they sort of walk around in groups and, uh, you know, people sort of pull their masks up, you know, when they walk by and so on. So it's a very uh, strange and uh, repressive atmosphere. There's very, very high fines for um, breaking the rules. There's a curfew. Um, They really uh, locked off the CBD to protesters. So although uh, demonstrations are illegal, the uh, uh, protesters would still try to enter into the city. So they really organized these uh, uh, checkpoints all around the city uh, a bit everywhere. So people uh, couldn't sort of gather together. So there's a real, um, 
yeah, it's a it's a it's a very very strange atmosphere, very tense. Uh, I think for whoever wants to see this, because um, the uh, these uh, demonstrations are absolutely uh, vilified as sort of you know you, if you see you know people from everywhere there, but they're all uh, uh, of course uh, uh, Nazis uh, who are violent, and uh, so. Yeah, that's the situation, and and the the what of course the the police they're acting extremely brutal. They shoot these, um, you know, the they have them a bit everywhere now. They have these really uh, tactical riot uh, gear, and they shoot at people with these rubber bullets. They shoot them in the back, and uh, yeah. yeah, we've seen you know very ugly scenes of you know like an old lady being pushed to the ground, a seventy year old, uh, and being pepper sprayed by two police officers. And yeah, well, I mean, the the or, w- w- one guy was at the main train station, sort of pile driven into the ground by a police officer. It's sort of a miracle this guy didn't die, um, it, which I, I, I suppose could have easily happened. But yeah, they uh, it, it's interesting because usually you would not um, get this sense of the police here. This is a very very uh, civil city, you know, we're very friendly, like ex- like ridiculously friendly people. I. I used to live in Berlin, and um, you know it's just very, very different here. You know, they, you know, people smile at you. They have this little chit chat, small talk. It's kind of a, you know, not that uh, you know, like not in the the the, the typical cosmopolitan uh, leave me the fuck alone vibe. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, th- that has changed too now. You know, with all the, mm-hmm. the for example, masking going on, so. Um, yeah, and of course, uh, what also has to be mentioned, yeah, the the police violence is, you know, if you, you know, like scratch beneath beneath the surface, is uh, a, a, actually a thing that was known before, but you you weren't affected as a sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> inner city, uh, uh, you know, resident, and uh, th- those things. Uh, you know, th- there's huge differences in Australia. Sort of, if you move away from the urban centers, you um, you really move in psychological decades, um, mm-hmm. not in minutes. You, uh, you know, there's there's completely different sociologies. It's very isolated, and yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, there seems to be a culture of violence with the police. But uh, you know, I think you, you you maybe have to interview some you know aborig- ab- Aboriginal person for that. You know, because I think they get a they get a lot of this, and um, yeah, that's that's also something you um, you sort of uh, uh, that's a thing you, you would have learned in the in the last days yeah it, it has really shown its um, ugly side mm. uh, so this is the general situation the, yeah there's a you know general I don't think COVID is a is a problem in in Australia in general or at least now there there seems seem to be deaths uh, that they they happen to coincide with the uh, with the mass vaccination campaign I just have to point that out because that's what it is uh, people <laughs> like to see that but this is uh, pretty much objectively what's happening um yeah and uh, right now what is going on in uh, yeah, new south south wales and victoria is there's uh, a lot of legal battles going on and that's the kind of hope that people have right now Wow, that's crazy to hear i i just thought i was blown away with the scenes from especially the um the peaceful pro- protest at the shrine of Re- shrine of remembrance. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting to hear. Like, it seems then that the scenes kind of do match the general atmosphere. 
Yeah. Um, has there been any, I mean, I'm aware that Australia's got a, a very separate um, administration for each region. It's very federalized. So has there been any differentiation between like mm. Western Australia and New South Wales, for instance, because uh, there seems to uh, there's seems to be slightly different flavors of government, even if they're committed to all the same things. So has it been a uniform response all over Australia, or has there been any regional variation? No, absolutely, uh, absolutely regional variation. Um, in lockdown, in in, in <laughs> I'm saying <laughs> lockdown from Melbourne now. <laughs> Um, in Melbourne, for example, we've had the longest lockdown, and in uh, New South Wales, in Sydney, uh, New, New South Wales is the, the federal state where, where uh, Sydney is located, and all of these uh, places are sort of in the south uh, east of the country, sort of in the in the in the remote corner, and uh, this is where most of the population is located in Australia, and overwhelming majority, and um, in uh, uh, Sydney they they had a they had a also a pretty pr brutal lockdown, also with lots of police. Um, there seems to be a differentiation within Sydney, between Western Sydney, which is poorer, and the Eastern suburbs where, you know, people are just hanging out at the beach. And um, they, I don't know, they, I, I can't blame them. They ignore the rules, but there also seems to be less uh, police pressure on these populations. You can really see that they, they pick out people um, they also locked down uh, whole tower blocks, for example, in Melbourne. And um, they actually where people weren't allowed to uh, leave their apartments. So that, it was mm. it's really like in China. It's, it's, it's absolutely yeah. incredible. It really has nothing to do anymore with uh, d democracy. It's or, or at least it's even this, you know, shitty <laughs> <laughs> what thing that we call democracy. It's like, like now the, these rules don't apply to you anymore, you know. Um, and yeah, that, that even happened in 2020. Uh, these things started happening. Also, by the way, uh, um, we, we've had military on the streets here. That is something that, I, that needs to be mentioned. Um, also, during the protests in uh, Victoria, there were scenes where people in uniform jumped out of unmarked vehicles and punched people. So that's really, really interesting. It's, I'm telling you, it's absolutely crazy. So the case of Western Australia is different. Um, Western Australia is this sort of huge absolutely huge state you know it's maybe 30 percent of the territory or something and uh, it's very uh, um, it's the, the the capital city is perth and it's not very populated you know there's maybe i don't know a bit less than three million people there and uh, it's sort of when you fly over it it looks like saudi arabia or something and it it, it is a sort of weird uh, isolated anglo africa and it's strange because that place hasn't mm. been locked down at all. So these people have been sort of on the streets and uh, I, I, I can't tell you why that is. You know, I think one, one of the theories I have is that, you know, perhaps it's not important enough. And uh, perhaps they're also doing a sort of, you know, as you said, the, 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 the individual states are very, um, they have a lot of power right now because the, the emergency powers are all located in the individual states. And it's, it's very strange because you don't see the, the, the um, um, Scott Morrison, the, the, the federal prime minister yeah. at all. Uh, you only see sort of this propaganda of Daniel Andrews and uh, what, what used to be the, the, the prime minister of New South Wales just, uh, just changed from uh, Gladys Berejiklian, this like, a woman that where they had a lot of sort of propaganda in, invested in her and um 
Yeah, but the reason why uh, 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 Western Australia is different, I, I can't say. Maybe a sociological thing. It's perhaps difficult to lock these uh, miners up, you know, because these people there, they have some balls, you know. It's a, sort of a very strange sociology. It's not sort of urban liberal elites at all. It's a very sort of crass humor, not without charm, you know. But I think these people are perhaps, you know... I, very strange isolated place they didn't have covered at all i think and um but yeah i mean you generally um, I, I was very surprised at how how uh, obedient um uh, australians have been during this whole situation you could expect that from melbourne perhaps uh but yeah the other places yeah i'm, I'm, I'm surprised to say the least you know because there is a sort of anarchist streak in um australian culture and in, in, in Australian sociology where, but yeah, very, very British, <laughs> let's say. And yeah, so but any, anyone's guess, like I'd, I'd be very interested, uh, you know, Western Australia is a very sort of independent state, but um, they, they have their sort of own, you know, perhaps a bit own identity too, but they don't, they don't have any, it's not like you, you would, uh, it's not like a Texas or something. So, um, you know, that, that like a place that has its own sort of infrastructures and political power, it's really a, it's a mining hub, that's the whole economy. So it's like the, uh, you know, the, 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 the savings bank of, of, I don't know, Britain or something, you know, for resources. I, I really think that's, you know, like in the, in the grander scheme of things, I think that's what it is. Mm. Well, it's tough to say, like, I, the the political structures in Australia seem to echo those of Canada in a lot of ways. Like there's a ton of power devolved onto the provinces and they enact uh, in Canada and much like Australia, they enact their own emergency legislation and have like a ton of, um, of ability to, to restrict various aspects of life. Uh, they have jurisdiction over all healthcare matters, for instance, and they further devolve powers onto these uh, public health units um, but it, I, it, it's been, it's very different here in Canada, although we have strict rules on the books, it's very seldom enforced. Um, the police have openly in Ontario and various other provinces come out and uh, like openly said, we are not going to enforce X, Y, Z, uh, law that's come down from the premier, uh, in Ontario, for instance. Um, so, but it seems like the mm -hmm. police, at least in Victoria, the state of Victoria and the state of uh, New South Wales, they've been overly eager to enforce these draconian uh, diktats. Um, so maybe Western, the Western state police force pushed back. That could be a possibility. They, they, they still, they, they have a, they have a reputation for oh, being brutal, but yeah, I, I think in a way you're right, because if you're, if the place is smaller, everybody knows each yeah. other. And I think these sort of alienated police forces that are just cracking down on populations, that is, a, that is really a thing of the big city too, right? Because it doesn't really fly in a small town, you know, where you're sort of beating up the son of yeah. someone you, you know, you're with. Well, yeah, if, if the cops live next door to the people they're beating up, there might be some consequences exactly. for their behavior. Which is why, like, in most, for most police forces now, they have the, the cops all drive in to the to the city they don't live in the places they police at all they live tens of miles away um like for london huge numbers of like the metropolitan police officers there come from like far outside of london and drive in to work where they do because it's a deliberate choice um you need to keep 
the population you're you know have to keep contained and periodically brutalized they have to be they have to remain alien to you as an officer and and also you have to be completely unafraid of consequences for your actions that is exactly what's happening and there's been a lot of speculation are these people even from there but um there is also this you really have this uh, disruption of empathy empathy if you put people in this riot gear you know and they don't have to show your yeah. faces their faces uh, I'm always surprised when I see the British police officers and, you know, you have these sort of scrawny guys, uh, <laughs> you know, that don't, don't have any right here and they're sort of struggling with <laughs> the protesters. I don't know, but, you know, in a way that's that's how police supposed to work. I think there's a much uh, smaller chance there's, uh, you know, excess police violence. But, of, yeah, of course, they're all struggling. There's all They're all stressed. There was a positive signal. There, here there's a group that has formed of, police officers who are against this regime yeah. and so that's a promising thing and for example the first time i saw some resistance was when they actually asked police officers to enforce the rules on playgrounds <laughs> <laughs> no it's, it, it, which is fantastic right because it's also you know these uh, these people in power they absolutely hate you cannot tell they they hate the police you know they really don't care about them at all <laughs> but uh, and 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 that was uh, yeah that that was uh, rejected by the police union. So I thought it was promising. There's a, there's a limit to uh, ridiculousness. <laughs> yeah, that's that's something that happened in Ontario as well, where I live. Um, the uh, during our last lockdown, I believe the last strict lockdown. We're still under lockdown, technically speaking, but the strict lockdown. He tried to um, bar children from going on playgrounds and he tried to implement a stop <laughs> a stop and frisk uh type law where police people were supposed to stop you from this if you're on the street and demand uh that you provide an essential reason why you were outside and immediately hmm. all of the police forces of the major cities came out with statements saying that they would not do that like they do not stop people for no for no reason and so then the premier actually had to rescind at least the playground uh, law, the playground dictat was rescinded, um, but the stop and frisk stuff was never, it was never, I, the police said they wouldn't be doing it, so it never, it was never implemented. So yeah, I, I think that you're right. Like, I think there are real limits, especially in this circumstance where there's no <laughs> reason. <laughs> like, it's just too irrational. <laughs> it's just too much. <laughs> Like it makes no sense. No, it's it, no, it's, it's. I mean, I think it's great to think about this, right? I mean, because they're they're really. I think there are, um, you know, first of all, there's anthropological limits to this. Yeah. And uh, I think this is why they want to build it sort of into an abstract social credit system where nobody really has to enforce this stuff. But at a certain mm. point, you always have to enforce. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, at least uh, the. the <laughs> Whatever you think about these police officers, you know they still remotely somewhere think they grew up in a in a democratic regime. But I think this is where you know this is where this moving people in from from the the provinces comes in because yeah, they, just sociologically it, it gets really people get re pretty brutal if you you know if you're in the right place here in Australia because these, there's really I think uh, uh, Canada is a much more sort of culture also that sees itself as uh, civil and, and civic so mm. yeah yeah i mean it's hard to think about the reasons why like we'll we'll talk about it during the show but 
maybe we'll take a step back um, onto the macro political situation. So there's been a few shocking developments coming out of Australia. The premier of New South Wales had to resign over allegations of corruption. And then her deputy um, premier had to resign as well. And then uh, it seems like your premier... Uh, Victoria is now facing similar allegations, but he said so far that he's not going. So Dan, Daniel, Daniel Andrews said he's not going to stand down. Okay. So I looked into it. It seems on the surface it's just, you know, run of the mill conflict of interest type allegation. But what do you think? Do you think that there's more to it? Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's quite interesting. So um, uh, Australia has this kind of, you know, like a you know, this, like minor Trump-like figure, and this guy's name is you know he does, doesn't have the charisma of Trump, and his name is Clive Palmer. He's a mining billionaire. He's a very controversial figure, very disliked by the liberal types. But I mean, you 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 know what that means? You know, it doesn't mean a lot. And he <laughs> made a very interesting uh, revelation, yeah, um, where he said, okay, this sort of um, corruption which is from i don't know 2012 to 2018 or something is something where the the former prime minister of um in new south wales was the, she was blackmailed by a, a, a lobbyist of astrazeneca yeah and um he said this publicly you know that it, it, it wasn't confirmed but i mean you know like in my mind, it lines up with the way things work in politics, right? They're all sort of these, uh, you know, petty gangsters and small criminals. And there's usually in a second, in a row behind them, there's somebody who's, you know, threatening to pull up the, this or that dossier, depending on how they behave, right? And um, so that makes a lot of sense to me as to why she, in the end, had to go. Um, yeah, she she's under, um, uh, under inquiry from this independent commission against corruption, I think, or something. But yeah, it, it's. I, th- I think in, in general in politics, you know, usually when people get sacked, it's a different reason for for that which is being uh, uh, publicized. And so, um, yeah, that's very interesting. The same thing is happening to Dan Andrews. Um, some people have been sort of rather pessimistic. They've been, they've said, um, Gladys, very, very, very She, um, that she, you know, didn't push hard enough to vaccinate. So that's the sort of the negative interpretation. Mm. Uh, will depend, uh, the, the new, uh, new guy is also, I think the father is world bank. Um, so I'm not expecting too much from some, you know, uh, um, politician but you know maybe maybe they're taking a step back maybe it's a strategic step back you know as that often happens uh yeah i think the the networks of corruption that's the same everywhere in politics right and these guys you know in australia it's usually um people are involved in weird uh, real estate schemes because there's so much money in there and uh, i think with gladys it's also known that she's surrounded by a couple of shady people child abuse investigations gareth ward is one of the people one of her friends and uh, so there's you know it's a it's a sort of a swamp like everywhere you know i think it's not no different in canada or in in in, in britain if you scratch the surface and uh, it's very very difficult to say um first of all whether that's going to be a success if, if daniel andrews is going to is going to do the same thing and also then what this means you know if they're if this is this means actual policy change it, it would definitely be promising because in the last months they just 
you could you could just tell there was a lot invested in propaganda you know like they had these real personas um of you know there's this hashtag on twitter that was constantly being uh, um, sent around i stand with dan and he was this <laughs> yeah it's absolutely sure. it's absolutely nauseating and there are these, there's a real um I think it's pretty obvious that it, this is some sort of uh, um, bot and sock puppet network of the Labour Party. <laughs> and no, 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 seriously, if you yeah. there are uh, there's an interesting account, interesting accounts that sort of where you can see okay, these people coordinate these talking points and they're being retweeted by people who retweet them and so on. Yeah. Um, it, it looks dodgy, you know, but uh, as always with bots, you can't really say that with certainty. And I think they've be become quite sophisticated. And I would, uh, yeah, I don't know, perhaps uh, one of your listeners is uh, inspired to look into this for other places, Canada and um, and the UK, because I think that would be very interesting to see. I think a lot of this is really a pseudo consensus that was uh, formed via social media where people thought, oh, really? Do Does everybody think like this? And then they, they look at the comments and then they see those bots, you know, saying, oh, yeah, great. Good job. <laughs> you know, go on. And uh... Yeah. Well, there was the the case of like the the Twitter doctors or apparent doctors who were all tweeting the same thing. And it was earlier this year, just when the government was like finally getting out of like lockdowns. And um, you know, suddenly all these like uh, accounts appeared on Twitter that were had like, um, you know, people in white coats <laughs> as the picture all saying, my uh, my ICU ward is overflowing with patients. Um, there are it's overflowing with young people. Everybody's dying, and then like you you look at you, uh, some people were pulling these up, and like there would be ten, twenty accounts all tweeting the same form of the same message. So it's it's clear that somebody has put something into put some money and resources into building like a bot army on Twitter, which we know that like presidential campaigns in the US have paid for before. Um, like I think Mitt Romney got caught doing it. Um, certainly the political parties here have to invest in order to like build some momentum behind their like tweets and messaging because it's also hideously unpopular. So I think for this, there's definitely been manipulation on the, on the social media side of things. And right down to like really stupid things like, Everybody remembers the uh, the all the videos of the dancing doctors on TikTok. It's like, yeah, well, who the hell was putting all that together? No, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's 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 very bizarre. And uh, yeah, the, the the more you the the more you it it, it really um, it really uh, reminds me of war propaganda. This whole thing, I, I it's just I can't help being reminded of the time past nine eleven and so on. You know that that's. You know, from for me, this this rollout is so absolutely aggressive, and um, you know the the people are so afraid. It's it's really incredible, and it, I, I, and I think that the pseudo consensus is really the way to do it these days. You know, you just uh, make everybody think, oh yeah, this is what the majority think. You know, like there's moms and dads, you know, like on Twitter, uh, like saying, oh, this is great, and I think then you know the, the, it, it it really produces these people. You know, it really then produces others to say the same thing i think it really works yeah i was just gonna say something along those lines like I, I i think there are some bots out there but i the 
the scientists and doctors, especially in countries that have uh, socialized healthcare, like the UK, Australia, Canada, everyone here, um, they're actually pretty well organized because they all work for the same employer essentially like and so they all like answer the same licensing board so they they all it's it's actually a pretty small community they all know each other quite well and so um you know in my research on this uh they're typically organized like over whatsapp groups and stuff like that so i think it's very um i think it's very uh plausible that for instance you know they decide that they want to try to pressure the government and of course because they're petty bourgeois they 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 start to think of some discursive stuff that they can do and they just you know share a message over whatsapp and say okay everyone share this on twitter so i I think that kind of thing might be happening as well a lot of it but yeah like i think the problem is too that the people who have the time and i don't know the inclination to tweet a lot are typically not like your average working man or woman right (laughs) it's typically like people who have the time and the access to that kind of stuff to feel confident enough to to do that but also like I mean there is a lot of overt censorship that goes on like very overt censorship that goes on plus the media is just completely just become propaganda there's nothing but propaganda messages that go on the news every single day so it is a I don't know if it's like a a conscious propaganda effort per se but I definitely think that there are some conscious elements to it. But it's reinforced by the the tight integration of the petty bourgeois class relative to everyone else who is who are quite alienated and quite uh, put apart. And so all they, you know, people only hear the common sense coming from these these types of people. They don't hear any real. They don't hear any any kind of uh, retort to any of these propaganda messages. And so even if they have kind of some intuitive sense that something's not quite right or something doesn't really make sense, they can't really they can't get, they can't really go anywhere to figure it out and when they do go somewhere it tends to be websites that are smeared as conspiratorial or people who are smeared as conspiratorial, anti-science, anti-vax, blah blah blah. It's a really bad situation. Like it's it's hard to think about how to exit this loop. Yeah, kind of apart from the from what we're saying, but I agree with you. It is it is a stunning war propaganda. Mhm. I, I think one thing that is, you know, that it's sort of observable is that the state has become the biggest advertiser. Yes. I think that is significant. You know, if you go into the city here, you know, you get all of these, oh, yeah, be, you know, be safe or some whatever messages, you know, and, you know, somebody's got to pay for those. And a lot of business has been, has declined and there's enormous amounts of sort of advertising space that has been taken up by state agencies. Mm. And you know the sort of the the what that means for the press is of course also that you know you're not gonna you're not gonna defy your main advertiser <laughs> you're not gonna do that right? that's very true and, mm-hmm. um, apart from that i mean and, and, and i'm saying that as somebody who's also studied this at university studied uh, sort of propaganda campaigns those things just have this look they have the feel you know there, there are sort of really these it looks like operations of intimidation and so on happening. Like, I think, I think to me, this is quite obvious. And yeah. of course it makes, uh, yeah, it makes you suspicious, you know, what is, what is actually happening here? I mean, whatever is going on right now, you know, and, and I think the, the problem is that, you know, we ridicule ourselves usually a bit when we say, okay, we have, you know, this is exactly what is happening because, you know, we just don't know. Um, but, you know, the, the, the almost looks like it also doubles as a preparation for war. <laughs> you know, it's, 
we have uh, um, uh, you know a bit everywhere we see uh, soldiers on the streets now that happened in dublin that happened in uh, lithuania yeah there's clearly um it's clearly uh, sort of organizationally even a, a thing that is you know sort of a you know, pre-war state, and yeah, I mean, we we, we could speculate sort of if there if there is, uh, you know, more than one agenda to COVID nineteen, you know, but yeah, um, yeah, again, it's speculation. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right. I think that I do get the sense that at the very least, the ruling class has a bit of paranoia about. I don't I don't think there's a lot of class resistance, like working class resistance right now, at least not in Australia, it seems for sure, not in Canada, most definitely, maybe a bit more in the UK. But I think that they're scared, the, the idea of that really scares them. And I think that kind of explains the, to say the least, overreaction right now uh, to even like the smallest kind of expressions of resistance, like peaceful protesting or breaking the COVID-19 rules and maybe part of it like ruling class psychology I don't know yeah I mean, I, it's definitely interesting you you I mean if you're in uh, Australia you can definitely you know people here they they generally live relatively well if you're if you know if you have an if you have a job and if you're a sort of middle class you you, you would live in a house usually and you know there's a lot of people own their houses in, in, in Australia. So they, you know, they sit somewhere. Um, the, the suburbs here are not like the suburbs in the UK, for example. There's a lot of space, assuming that Canada is the same, right? There's a lot of space there. You know, people sit in their gardens and, you know, then they perhaps they go on Zoom and, you know, like do some bullshit job, you know. So you can see why there's not a, you know, why these people don't have a problem, you know, like, and they probably like to think of themselves as sort of heroes, you know, who are saving lives by, by having a Chardonnay in their <laughs> gardens in the evening or something. But it's also interesting because, you know, I, I would have said, you know, you would have asked me if there if there is, you know, like, I mean, I don't know if there's a there's a, such a thing as a working class here, but there is definitely a sort of transparent congregation of people who don't like this and who resist it. And I think the, the interesting thing is precisely they come from all walks of lives. And I think it's also uh, because... Um, in, as I see it, they, you know, they, they, these people, they want to get rid of these, you know, upper middle classes because they're really hard to govern. And um, I think there are some people who have understood this and um, they know that, you know, if they if they don't say anything now, they, they won't have anything to say anymore in the future. Because, you know, I mean, what is the job of doctors now? They, they, they don't treat people anymore. Uh, so, so, so what do they do? What is their purpose? I, I would say we don't really need them anymore because they're not doing their job very well. So um, I'm sort of, uh, you know, quietly um, optimistic or, or cautiously optimistic about a black market of, you know, uh, you know, con conscientious nurses and doctors, you know, who, who have enough of the system or who are being forced out of it. And, you know, who can perhaps actually start taking care of their patients because, you know, that's some that's the thing that hasn't happened in the last years. <laughs> it's certainly not happening now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially this whole the whole the way that the medical community writ large has reacted to the vaccine stuff has been, well, to the lockdowns, to a lot of stuff, but especially the vaccine stuff is just it's medical malpractice. There's no other way of putting it. Absolutely. 
agree with that. It's just, it's absurd to see a propaganda line, the pandemic of the unvaccinated, taken up by these people as if that's a scientific hypothesis in fact. Not, a, not, not even a hypothesis, a fact. And then they, then they go and they work backwards and they create data and explanations to fit into that propaganda line instead of looking at what's going on and using a scientific inductive deductive process to figure out what's really going on. Like why are why are we seeing in Canada in Canada things have gotten way worse since the vaccine has been rolled out and we're one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. Mm. So yeah, I agree with you like they're not doing <laughs> they're 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 contributing to what I think is going is most definitely at the very least a net harm. Like it could be even worse than that, but we'll see. I mean, absolutely. They're, they're not respecting their patients. I think that's a big problem. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. We have there, you know, it's this class of people who've been bribed monetarily and with prestige, sort of, you know, this, this is why, you know, most doctors are just terrible people. You know, they, they don't have time for their patients and so on. Like I'm, I'm very, I've been very disenchanted with the medical system and there are some very good people like they are everywhere else. But yeah, they, I think they had a they had a very difficult time, and I, I think that people, you know, these people have been systematically exhausted in the last months. Um, you know, they I know from personal people I know they have to wear masks all day and so on. Uh, they're not being treated well, and yeah, of course, you know, you you're, you're not you can't expect these people. You know, they're they're basically uh, you know they're. Um, sort of high-skilled handyman, you can't expect them to go home and spend their days reading research papers. That, you know, the absolute minority of people will do that. And yeah, most people are just, uh, they have faith in this medical system. And I think the system has failed before. I, I know people who are doctors and yeah, I, I know some of the practices, some of the stuff they've done and some of the sort of very weird moral um, things they have come to accept in the in the in the years because their system is also you know the hospital has become a business and you know health can't run as a business you know because <laughs> it would be the other way around you know like if you would uh, you, you, you we we should have a health system where we that we pay if we don't have to take their services or something because it runs on on something completely different if you go to a doctor nowadays you know he definitely is so desperate to prescribe you something and you know i'm old enough to know that it used to be at least in germany used to not be like this well also i mean i i, I went to when i was at university it was um attached to one of the biggest medical schools in england so like i knew plenty of doctors when they were going through training and a lot of those guys weren't very bright um they were doing it because um, they were like third, fourth, yeah, yeah. fifth generation medical family. And and also, like, I, I've known plenty of nurses who will tell you that, like, most of them, um, when they start out, they don't know anything either. They're, like, literally Googling the, uh, what, what's wrong with a patient. Um, and yet, like, the, of course, it's a job with a lot of prestige attached to it. And, of course, we all know from, like, the old psychological tests that they used to run on people from the 50s that if you put a white coat on somebody, a lot of people suddenly take him a lot more seriously, undeservedly, as it turns out. Um, and I think what, what the last 18 months has really exposed is the fact that the uh, there are a few excellent and conscientious medical professionals there's another group of appalling ones, and there's a huge group in the middle that just does what it's told, that just goes with the consensus. 
that if there's if the five guys at the top of their particular hospital or profession say something, they'll all just repeat it ad nauseum. Um, particularly if there's financial or prestige-based rewards attached to towing the line. And in that, the medical profession is absolutely no different to any other uh, public or private bureaucracy. Um, there's no particular nobility to it at all. And then you throw in, as you mentioned, Nicholas, the commercial imperative, which has crept into the National Health Service here over many years, um, now that um, essentially the the NHS just exists as a brand and huge portions of it have been sold to often American private healthcare companies. And all of, put all of that together and you get the conditions for like sustaining this um, propaganda effort for a year based on junk science and just constant reinforcement via historical moral exhortations. And it's really exposed the medical profession. And ultimately, it's going to do them a lot of damage, especially if there is a growing um, health scandal coming from the mass vaccination campaigns because the, the, they're selling a product that wasn't tested properly. It's going to end up damaging the medical profession, and many would say they deserve it. The problem is that waiting in the wings with a solution, in our case in Britain, is private healthcare who'll step forward and say, ah, yes, more market relations will sort this out. So we're kind of stuck in a bind at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I absolutely agree. Um, on, on the other, uh, other hand side, I'm optimistic about what can grow from this uh, sort of damage, because in the short run, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that uh, this will cause a lot of deaths. I think it's an absolute catastrophe that's happening right now, that's unfolding, and uh, we can't see it yet, uh, but we will We will see it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very certain of that. But yeah, I'm also sort of... Uh, disencha disenchantment with medicine is a good thing, in my opinion. If people sort of seek other help and, you know, like in a, you know, we can, we can discuss sort of what, you know, that, that is a market as well, or sort of something that is perhaps a black market that is going to emerge for now for uh, medical practices. That is a good thing, in my opinion. The problem is these pharmaceutical companies, because there you have really this, uh, you know, this is absolutely frightening because also they, they, if, if you're in the business of uh, disease and death, you're not uh, scared to hurt people. And this is why, you know, there, there were scandals in the past where I think it was the company Merck that they created hit lists for doctors to sort of damage their reputation. So we have something there that is not even, you know, that, that that's a whole, which I think is a, is a, is a general trend that these uh, big companies make use of uh, smaller companies for services where they really, you know, <laughs> harass people and so on. It's almost like they have their own executive arm you know to muscle people into compliance and i think that's extremely scary but i think that's definitely something that's observable and there is a, is a real uh, a, a question sort of how uh, what you know what is what is going to emerge as a as a as a counterweight to that that is some really like if you're you know if there's intellectuals listening uh, like you, you need some ideas for that you know i think there's some promising developments, for example, if you, 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 I don't know if you're familiar with this Project Veritas stuff, you know, it's this, um, uh, in a way, they're using um, secret service tactics uh, to, uh, you know, expose people in pharmaceutical companies. Now, I know that, you know, I'm, I'm 
talking to uh, left wingers that sort of aesthetic may not be your style. But you know, I think it's an interesting way to to think about things. Oh well, he certainly called out the uh, the guy from Pfizer and the CNN guy. Um, those were good exposés because um, the exposure of the CNN producer just confirmed something. Two things that. Um, we'd been speculating about, which is that the the they they put the death count and the case count on the news in big scary figures because it made good television and got ratings, and also a lot of it was about that, and for a lot of it was um, with CNN was pushing a political narrative, trying to pin the whole thing on Trump, which was a motivation. And like the Pfizer guy just said what we what many doctors who've been pushed to the margins have been saying, which is that the natural natural immunity is stronger uh, than the than the vaccinations that they're offering, even if you took the vaccinations as being one hundred percent effective. Um, and also, what this has done um, is brought out into the open, and we said this on a previous show. What's happened to the regulatory agencies? which is that they've all been captured and are completely controlled by the pharmaceutical companies. Like the the FDA in the United States sees its role as supporting the industry. And they've gotten away with it for a long time because they've been pushing drugs only to sort of small segments of the population. Now they're pushing this thing on everybody. You're going to get a gigantic scandal because suddenly everyone's going to see that the, um, the procedures for approving drugs are just hugely inadequate. And that they're there just to get the drug on the market as quickly as possible and public safety be damned uh, to the point where they're literally saying in their documentation, uh, tests to be run after, um, safety tests to be run after distribution. So like literally admitting that they, oh yeah, you're, you, the public are now in a mass guinea pig phase. So I think, yeah, I think you're right to a degree, Nicholas, which is that they, suddenly all the dirty stuff they've done and got away with it for a long time, this actually does bring it out into the open with probably quite nasty, very nasty consequences for people who are going to be badly affected by this, by this drug, um, which, of course, they've been legally indemnified from the results of their, their actions, <laughs> which if it, was, if it was what they said it was, they wouldn't need that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely insane situation. Yeah, totally agree. Mm. Well, I guess this kind of ties in nicely to a question we wanted to ask you, maybe kind of moving into your review of Braden's book and Braden's perspective. So I really love this quote you have here where you, so you talk about comparing Braden versus Angabin and even Illich. And you say that in actual fact, both provide coherent responses to the advent of a scientific dictatorship seeking to abolish bodily autonomy and bullying subjects into injecting rushed experimental uh, medication to generate a valuable legal cultural precedent for the fourth industrial revolution, which is officially heralded as the blending of IT and the life sciences. So I know that Australia is very digitized, much more than Canada and the UK, and now they've announced that they're also doing the vaccine passport, which is supposedly going to be linked to the passport chip paradigm that you have in, in Australia. So what do you think? Like, do you think that Australia is there? Is it the epidemiological society that Braddon dreamed up of in his book? Yeah, um, we don't know yet. I think uh, this is, uh, I, I think we're not looking at an Australian problem. I think that you guys are going to have a very rough winter. Uh, remember, we have a summer oh, coming up yeah. here. 
this is why they do this uh, vaccination campaign now, by the way, because the, the cases are naturally declining anyways, and then you can sort of sell it as uh, something that happened because of the vaccine. At least that's the idea. I think we're, we're still, even that is not working. Yeah, it, it, it looks like this sort of nightmare society. But let's say there is currently, and I think that's, that's a hope for many people, there is a sort of congregation around... Um, this very strong rule of law aspect that is a part of all British societies, I think. You know, there's a very strong common law aspect. And a lot of these sort of upper middle class professionals and perhaps also sort of lower upper class people rally around this right now a bit, you know, because I think a lot of people have um, sort of... Uh, read the writing on the wall and uh, know that they're not going to be uh, relevant anymore if they don't sort of defend the rule of law. And so these things are being fought out right now, you know, whether these sort of any uh, pre-2020 uh, normative legal framework has still any relevance. And I think in that regard, it's very interesting because when you look at this Bratton book, you know, of this clown, and uh, he actually attacks the rule of law as as one of the problems, you know, that the legal society is something that's, you know, outdated or whatever. And uh, I thought uh, this book is so, uh, it's really like, a, I would uh, qualify it as immunosuppressive theory. You know, it's really uh, trying to take away a, a, a cultural uh, a normative immune system from a society. And I think that's why it's so insidious. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've uh, privately uh, <laughs> speculated with uh, some people on Twitter whether this guy is actually who he is and, and sort of what his networks are and, and why he is where he is and why he does what he does because he doesn't actually, I mean, he doesn't strike me as stupid and it looks like it's almost something that's, that, you know, where somebody's really writing with an agenda you know, to sort of sell this uh, shoddy uh, fourth industrial revolution. I mean, you you read my, uh, you know, this monstrous quote, which I didn't even know it's so monstrous, only, you know, such a long sentence, you know, very Germanic. <laughs> um, it's, I think it's better read, <clears throat> it's better read than, than, than listened to. Uh, I, I advise or I, I recommend for people to, to read this review um, and to, to have a look at this book, because I think it's really, uh, you know, it's such uh, intellectual, what bankruptcy or <laughs> whatever, or perhaps not even, I mean, I don't, I, I really don't know what this guy is thinking, but I've, I, I've seen his character now. He's trying to get people fired who criticize his work. I mean, I, it's absolutely inexcusable, you know, like to me, this guy is really a, um, you know, like I, I, I sort of, uh, you know, also have some cautious hope that whenever, you know, um, people will will take his name in their mouth, then that it will only be to spit mm. it out. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I think it's the the book striked me as, as more of a it wanted to be a political treatise for the future, but I felt like it was more a descriptive of what was going on, but a descriptive from a certain perspective and a certain vantage point that was not altogether in touch with what actually happens on the ground. I think things are a little bit different in Australia, but um, in Canada, the biosecurity pronunciations and rules that we have on the books don't really match up with what actually happens. Like the rules are not enforced. People ignore them. 
the police doesn't want to enforce them. So it it kind of is like a I thought the book was like kind of a uh, apologia for what's going on and trying to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I I agree. I also I sort of read it. I think uh, well, a lot of political theorists in the past have been sort of the apologists yeah. of their time and of their of the transformations of their power. And I uh, I think uh, Bratton knows uh, you know like uh, Thomas Hobbes and Carl Schmitt and so on, and their role in history hasn't been different. I think you know, and I think perhaps he sees himself as this sort of. Uh, politologue du prince <laughs> who's uh, <laughs> you know writing for the for the for the new regime or whatever and yeah it's it's interesting i actually knew one of the guys who installed this digitization system he uh, was responsible his name was paul shetler who was the for a while the chief information officer of australia and um yeah he warned uh, he was a really really interesting guy a sort of american I, I'll never figure out. Maybe he's also some kind of spook character, but I don't know. Like he died uh, last year, unfortunately, and uh, he was a he was a great guy. Um, and uh, he said, "Yeah, this is precisely what's going to happen. They're going going to uh, build a system where you can be deplatformed from your house." And I think there is something uh, very uh, seducing to this, uh, you know, these uh, sort of digital systems where you can just shut people out from society um, passively and you don't need uh, other people to enforce it, right? Because <laughs> then you don't actually need a police force, you know, you, it's, it's enough to sort of lock people out of, uh, out of the supermarket, you know, they can't pay or they can't enter with their card or something and then, you know... <laughs> It's, it actually solves a lot of problems. It's, it is intellectually coherent. You know, this society that is being built via these uh, uh, hyperscale structures, that is really a society where you don't need people. And, um, you know, that it, it, that, that's not a very promising thing. You know, I think these, uh, you know, this, this uh, little network that is in power has discovered that they don't need people anymore. And that's something that, you know, people should pay attention to. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. That this, there, there, there's something that is fundamentally, uh, you know, if you're a dialectical thinker, you, you'll, you have to, you have to um, acknowledge that something fundamental has happened to the, to the quality of a population that is sort of, that used to be a huge asset. And now that is almost in, you know, times of ecological thinking, a population is becoming also a sort of liability. And uh, if you don't, uh, you, you, you know, people should pay attention to that, you know, like, what is my role in society? You know, like, who's going to need me, you know, because <laughs> they're certainly not going to need mm. doctors, you know, or, or whatever, lawyers or something like that. And I think, yeah, pay, pay attention, people, you know, like, where are you in this thing? You know, like, what do you what, what do you actually produce? And who do you produce for? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I, I guess like my advantage, like from uh from my perspective, like I do, I think that the the role and the functions of different layers in society will persist more or less as they always have. Like I mean, there's the petty bourgeoisie, like the doctors, scientists, bureaucrats, etc., are always necessary for the running of the system because they essentially they manage the rest of well, uh, the vast majority of people who are not in that class. But I think you're right in saying that. What we're seeing, it seems to me, like, I think the biggest risk, in my view, is that the ruling class is setting up a bunch of legal paradigms and technological architecture, as well as um, in a fraying of um, of social relations. 
uh, via things like, you know, lockdowns and myths like asymptomatic spread. And so I, uh, my fear is that if we have a, if we fall into a bad depression, uh, economic depression, then these things will be brought out again and uh, in a, in a, in a more forceful form, like, you know, used to like oppress like a, a huge wave of, of opposition that I think will inevitably arise if there is a bad economic downturn. I think that the Braddon book is kind of, um, in terms of its its weight as political theory, it, it kind of acts as a way of of explaining to the ruling class to the ruling class like why that's okay, like why is it okay to potentially act in this way? Because I, every everyone you even even ruling class people obviously need like an ideology to justify their own actions to some extent. And so in in previous eras, that was you know in, in enslaved societies, for instance, that was perhaps an ideology of race or, you know, the ideology of, you know, Aristotle's natural slave, for instance. It seems to me like this idea that now we have um, like science as this neutral arbiter of what is good uh, might be might serve as the next, you know, maybe even fascistic uh, ideological cornerstone. I mean, yeah, I I don't think I'd share this analysis. I think that, you know, like Bratton's not writing to the ruling class, Bratton's writing to the whatever, to the, you know, like intellectual, you know, and to other intellectuals and, you know, that, that their role is to <laughs> shut up. Like Bratton didn't develop these ideas, you know, like that has always been around. And I think, you know, even this, if you look at these, uh, the, the, the networks of, of, uh, you know, government scientists and epidemiologists and so on, if you look at f- people like Fauci, yeah, you know, look, go back, look at the AIDS crisis. It's the yeah, exact same thing. Like these things are not; these things have been been in the making for for a while. And the more you look into it, I really like people do their, you know, do your research. Like look into the networks of these people. Like who are they? What do they do? What happened after nine eleven with the anthrax scare? Like Whitney Webb did some really excellent work on this. Uh, if you don't know that, you know she's her. She's she's a really great journalists like there's a lot of stuff in there but you know th- those are they're, they're not new ideas and you know that the, the Bratton is absolutely derivative you 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 know he's some clown who explains to the intellectuals you know how they can feel good about themselves and not have to do anything you know that but he's not addressing themselves to to I, I don't think these people in power you know, would read Bratton's book yeah you know? <laughs> no, they'd have an intern read it and give them the bullet, the, give them the talking points from it. That's so. Uh, I, 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 th- I think they commissioned a, a book like this, you yeah. know, but not. <laughs> well, that's how we know our our beloved prime minister likes to read. He likes to have um, six points on an A4 piece of paper handed to him that he can recite. Um, he doesn't like to think or engage with anything that takes him more than about ten minutes, um, and but. That's the that's the level of leader that we have in like the advanced capitalist world now, because in in the British case, certainly like so much of the government was run on automatic by the uh, by the civil service and by the sort of uh, the wider bureaucracy um, for a lot for the longest time. And so we just had leaders who performed the role of a leader whilst the uh, the machine of capitalist government just continued along in the background. And so when for instance, Boris Johnson was confronted with the need to make decisions early early on last year. Like he was the he was completely unsuited to do it. So 
just grabbed the first uh, thing that was presented to him, which was the plan from this creep, uh, Professor Neil Ferguson, who's been getting public health decisions wrong in this country for 20 years. Um, he said, oh, yeah, we'll do this lockdown thing. The Chinese have done it. It's really good. Um, and he had no evidence to support that whatsoever. But our, our cabinet seized on it because it seemed like to them it was an easy answer. It was something that looked big and dramatic, but didn't involve them actually doing anything. Um, because we've got people who don't want to actually govern. They just want to sit there, take take the money and let the machine run itself. And that's the entire uh, political class in this country to a T. So not capable of reading, not capable of making decisions. All they're capable of doing is sort of just letting the machine run on and that's this is how part of how we got into the mess i i'm always cautious to say um you know there is this or that reason i think you know that these things there's a there's a multitude of reasons and there's a multitude of networks within government and their you know reasons and objectives might might may diverge from each other there's people uh you know like where you can say okay this is just a corrupt leader or most often, you know, it's some, you know, like with any politician, there's a sort of, you know, a dossier of, of things that they've done in their political career and it's being pulled out and, you know, people are sort of placed in positions of power, you know, but it, I, I think it's very difficult that there's a, I think there's, I see a lot of motives in this, in this thing, you know, there's, there's economic, um, there is perhaps even what shines through me in the in the COVID nineteen crisis is a is an is an ecological motive in the sense of I believe that that is really a thing there is really a, such a thing in the West as a, a Malthusian a, a, a ruling class somewhere who believe that okay the the you know population control is one of their primary objectives. And, you know, you, you can even argue that, you know, perhaps they're, they're right about that in a way. And, you know, like, you know, we, just, we, we disagree sort of about the, the brutality and, and about how that is being implemented. I think it's very sort of difficult to assess how, how, how adequate these things are. But I, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different motives. And yeah, of course, also there's a scientific one, you know, where people say, okay, yeah, we want this new, that's sort of a, a, you know, we want to open up the, the popular body as a, as a locus of, of new technologies that we're developing, like absolutely no doubt, you know, and, but, you know, all these things, they play together, but that doesn't mean, uh, you know, the, the, there's sort of in the, in the political, in the political world, there's different uh, zone politicon, <laughs> there's different characters and there's different types uh, and, you know, some of them very well know what they're doing and others, you know, don't know what they're doing at all. And these people sit on, the, you know, like formally sometimes have the same positions. I mean, to your point, um, I do think that the leadership right now is a disorganized mess. And I, I think certainly, I mean, my impression, at least looking at the Canadian ruling class, I mean, listen, I, I find it really hard to take any of these guys seriously. Um, I think they're a bunch of bozos, but I do think there are some some truly cynical people that do have obviously have some uh, malevolent plans, but I just I just don't feel I just my impression of at least the Canadian ruling class is that they're not. <laughs> I I just don't think that they're I don't know for lack of a better word I just don't think they're intelligent enough to actually make this these kinds of fantasies happen, <laughs> um, and, and so far they've they've broadly failed in Canada except for the uh, 
the lockdowns that we've had, um, which were quite harsh, like closing things that they've been able to do. But otherwise, like so far, they've I mean, the passport that we had, the vaccine passport in Ontario, for instance, is uh, is comical. But I, I'm not going to speak to you too much because I've been wrong on that before. I didn't think it was going to happen. It did. So maybe they're a bit smarter than I think. All right. So sorry. Well, last question. We asked this to George Hoare, who's from the Alf, uh, Alf Bunga Bunga podcast. Um, he was talking to us about COVID-19 through like a Gramscian lens. So I want to ask you the same question. Like, so why do you think that COVID-19 ideology has been so persistent and so pervasive and has literally changed common sense? Like, why do you think it's had such a profound effect? What about it? Yeah, I, I mean... Perhaps one way to to answer this, I'm a. I think I mentioned it before. I'm sort of from my um, university training, sort of, you know, been very interested in the communication sciences. Like I, I made this uh, uh, sort of working definition of ideology once, where I said ideology is a systematic hearsay about cause and yeah. effect patterns. Systematic hearsay about cause and effect patterns. So there's two sort of things about this why what, what is systematic hearsay right like that's a sort of that has an aspect of you know media you know an economy of rumors of you know con- conditioned reflexes and distortions because i think we're you know we're dealing with a lot of conditioned reflexes here a lot of you know if you argue with people online sort of you always get the same answers for same for for things you know like and it doesn't of course they're they don't. They have their own sort of. Perhaps there is a logical consistency somewhere, but it you know doesn't really make sense why you, you know, like people really quickly sort of lose these debates because they can't answer to certain things. Like why do you you know use a medication that doesn't prevent uh, sickness, but that you know everybody needs to be protected, although they have already taken yeah. it and so on, and you need to be protected from those who haven't taken it. You know they, they, those things they abs- they absolutely don't make sense um so there are a lot of these um cause and effect patterns i think in society that you know we're just dealing with and a lot of them are you know a lot of there's medical myths there is sort of this pastorian paradigm you know the where you know symptomatic approach to medicine where you're like oh yeah you're fighting bacteria and viruses where you know you are composed of bacteria and viruses if you look at modern biology like the the perspective is already so outdated it's so ridiculous sort of the sort of medicine we're practicing um but yeah it sort of it plays into i think a um i think it it plays into uh, uh character structures that are sort of st- strongly affected by disgust and you know yeah you 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 build sort of these political systems with disgust you know i think that's very obvious when you you see people with these masks and then you walk past them without a mask and then you can really see in their faces they are scared and disgusted and uh, yeah why is that the case yeah because they've learned that you know there there is a hostile world out to get them of bacteria and viruses uh, that are sort of intruding into the you know, the body that is sort of conceived as a clean and sterile bathroom, <laughs> you know, and sort of the, the, there's, a, there's an enemy from the outside. And, I, and, and that's a very prevalent, it's con- scientifically completely debunked, but very uh, a prevalent imaginary of politics, right? And of, uh, and of medicine that, yeah, you need to be protected from something that's on the outside. It's, and it's, it's completely wrong. And I think that, yeah, that, that definitely helps. 
and yeah, then if you look at um, sort of the, the Gramscian perspective too, I, I think it's very, very interesting to, um, you know, somebody who, who, who read uh, 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 Gramsci um, to, yeah, look at what is happening right now in terms of, uh, uh, yeah, perhaps a historical block um, and this uh, sort of uh, uh, completely failing civil society, yeah. right? And then ask yourself why is the why is the why is the civil society completely failing? And the reason of it is, yeah, we have a system where we have sort of um, you know this uh, completely uh, disproportionate wealth accumulation that actually allows it for a, a few people to to completely buy a part of civil society and buy this permanent advocacy network. Right. If you look at, uh, you know, these public private partnerships and if you look at the, the sort of the ecosystem of foundations and um, yeah, that these things that, you know, where you think, OK, yeah, that perhaps that used to be a civil society in another <laughs> in another age. And of course, nowadays it, it has become part of the state. Right. It has become it is the state. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what is the effect on, on you're asking on, you know, changing common sense. Yeah. Common sense in itself. Yeah. There's this uh, saying, this old uh, I don't know, 70s saying or something where it's you say common sense is self-defense. Right. And I, I think that's still true, you know, because people who, who know how to think, you know, and who to who sort of, uh, you know, the, the thought is always manipulated from the outside by, by associating it with a certain prestige. You know, you can't think certain things because they're associated with, uh, you know, ridicule. You're, uh, you know, if you're thinking about Bill Gates, you're a conspiracy theorist and you're stupid. You know, it's interesting to see uh, where, just let, let common sense guide you. If, 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 you know, if people had a bit more uh, uh, courage, <laughs> then uh, th th this wouldn't be a problem, right? So. Um, yeah, common sense. Why has it changed? Uh, uh, distortions, the distortions of uh, uh, capital, right? The distortions of of money and the communication sciences that, uh, or you know, like to to say it more blandly, advertising that uh, sort of distort mm. everything. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that for sure. Like, I think, I think especially in this time when like. Um, like you know we're in this like historic um stock market bubble and real estate bubble especially in places like Canada and Australia i think that we're in the top like 5 or whatever housing bubbles in the world i think that the resulting ideologies and the resulting superstructure on that you know base that's so swelled with fictitious capital i think it does give rise to an irrational situation a, a, an environment of irrationality and so you know you're, you're describing all of these things that in people aren't really thinking through they're just kind of repeating what are nonsensical phrases but and nonsensical fears but like I guess can kind of be expected in this kind of environment that's just like so an economy that is so based on something things that are fake like fake value so maybe we could see it in that way like it's a reflection of like this economy that's that's like floating above like way above and beyond like the productive bases that exist in any given nation state right now at least in the advanced capitalist nations 
Well, don't forget us. We're in the uh, top five property bubbles as well oh. and still climbing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, they're, they're still boosting the house prices in London. Of course they are. I think also like the, the, the ruling class in the advanced capitalist nations has had it their own, almost their own way completely for um, over three decades, like as long as I've been alive. Yeah, and yet their system still keeps running into the ground like um still keeps building up these gigantic uh bubbles of um as you were saying Layla fictitious capital which have to go pop at some point and they're going to try and make every, um everybody else pay the price for it other than their own class but we keep get running into like more and more irrational outcomes because the economy's become more and more stretched away from um real production into the realm of the fictitious and that that reflects itself into the political superstructure, which is get you get entirely fictitious public scandals, entirely fictitious events, and people becoming politicians who are essentially just actors as well, because they're those systems that uh, we see in the public um, eye of things. Those systems don't actually make the decisions. The decisions is already made in distant bureaucracies beyond the praying eyes of the working class, and so. This is like the system that we've ended up with after three decades of capitalism having it exactly the way it wants it, and it's still just as irrational and as crazy as it ever was. And I think on some level, some of the ideologists of capital know that, so that's why they're sort of groping for a solution, but their their solutions are distinctly dystopian. Okay, well, uh, Nicholas, like I, I think that's all the questions we had. Like, Do you have any closing thoughts? Um, anything you want to leave us with? <laughs> Closing thought. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> oh God, it's a tough situation. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really difficult situation for everybody. Yeah. Uh, for everybody who is holding out, mm. and yeah, be uh, you know, like I, I can really advise people on a different. This is a for me. This is a psychological warfare situation, and I think it helps to address it as such because it it explains why you're under stress and why things are so difficult. Yeah, I, I think this is uh, this is extremely important right now, and I think people, yeah, people need to stand up. They need to do something. They they need to say their bit because that may be the last time that you know we we have a chance that we're being asked at all. I, I really see that as a as a problem. I think the system can't last because it's you know that, that, that this is a warfare against everybody. Everybody is a bit free. Hates this. Hates. The, the, the things that are happening you know, and I, I don't think it can work in the long run but you know the the, <laughs> the question is uh, how much uh, sort of carnage is being done until then and uh, there's a good chance that there'll be a lot of carnage from this yeah but um, I mean you know we uh, yeah they have to, have to be have to be optimistic and sort of uh, this is a you know spiritual as much as political uh, find good people and yeah, try to be um, yeah, try to be try to be unifying rather than divisive, uh, because you can you can sort out the details later. That's what I that's what I believe. You know, like if people on you know if people re- refuse this that is happening right now, I think that's enough for a political coalition right now because that's the only one that's there. And I think you know people need to at a certain 
point they need to face reality because at a a lot of people are dissociating right now they are that's the you know perhaps the best way to describe it people are like they're living in a different world they don't want to see what is happening right in front of their eyes but most people feel that there is something profoundly wrong and that i think they're being lied to and you know if people get to acknowledge that there's this huge atmosphere of fear and terror uh, then that, that that is a that is already a victory you know <laughs> if you if you acknowledge that hey there's something really wrong right now isn't there you know the other person is like yeah maybe you're right you know i think that's a that's a small victory you know i mean i don't know i don't i don't know what else to say you know we're under pressure we're under a lot of pressure here mm-hmm. and i think you are too and i don't think it's going to get you know i think it may get tough in, in in winter for the northern hemisphere i think that that's something that may happen because i think it's no accident that they try to push it through so desperately right here right now and uh, yeah, call out uh, the Australians are good people, you know, like we appreciate any help from the outside, any, you know, people who sort of call this out until if you're an intellectual and you don't say something now, you know, you're kind of pathetic, you know, like, so uh, do something, say something, you know, call this out. Uh, because if you don't call out what's happening here, you know, this, this stuff is going to happen to you. <laughs> this is going to happen. You know, I'm sure this is a test run, you know, for other countries and, you know, they're getting away with a lot, you know, so yeah, disobey, like do what you can do. Like I'm, you know, I'm asking for everybody, you know, like, like really look, look, you know, if you want to look at yourself in the mirror, uh, you know, do whatever small thing you can, you know, I know people are in difficult, you know, situations. Yeah. I totally understand that. You know, people have families, people have, uh, um, you know, they have to pay the bills and so on, but in the end, you know, like we, we, we're also, we're we're people, you know, we can't live like this. We can't live like under this complete control. So sooner or later, that's going to go wrong. But, you know, these things they can, we know from history that this kind of stuff can, can last for a long time. You know, I mean, it's, it's going to go down eventually, but, you know, before that it's may, may get difficult. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that that's all I can say. Like talk to people, like talk to your, try to talk to your neighbors and forgive them for being assholes, you know, because you need them on your side in the end. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree in that um, people do need to learn to stand up for themselves and they need to learn to say no because a lot of the time, I mean, just doing that one thing is enough to stop what's going on. You know, having honest conversations with people, connecting with people and trying to figure things out for oneself, doing one's own analysis the best that one can together with his and her peers is something that I think everyone needs to rediscover especially since like the authorities are not are uh, compromised. <laughs> mm. So we can't depend on them. You have to you have to develop your own critical thinking skills is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot, look, there's a lot of good people out there. Like you really, I think for me, that was like a revelation. I've, yeah. I've been, I've been mm. negatively surprised by people, and but I've also been very positively surprised. You know, there's really, you know, a lot of people where you think, oh, this is you know, these people are fundamentally all right. You know, they're, they're not trying to, to be in your business, which is the sort of the new ideology is like your business is not your own. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, you know, I, it, it's also very interesting for me, you know, personally, I've, I've been, you know, I've had this sort of transformation where I'm now, you know, using the words human rights <laughs> without chuckling, you know, that is something, you know, that is completely, uh, you know, I'm, I'm surprising myself, you know, I'm becoming this democracy guy, you know, that, that and, and I think, you know, like that would have been a milquetoast thing to say 
uh, you know, even a year ago or something. And all of a sudden, it's the most subversive thing you can do, you know. And I think there is something where uh, people actually, they still understand this language in a way. And if you can translate it to them in this meaningful way, you know, I think there, you know, there'll, there'll be something in them that'll react to this, you know. And yeah, we can argue, you know, that... We all know, you know, that, that, that sort of democracy has been a joke for the last years, you know, but there are actually some institutions, you know, they're, they're working or they could potentially work. But I, I really think it depends on, you know, what, what decisions people make. And But yeah, but also, yeah, definitely we will need some new solutions, you know, because we there's definitely a problem that, that we're there already, you know, like and that. And that is a very serious problem, you know, that all of these, that doctors are not standing up and so on. That's really, uh, that's really incredible. You know, that's really a problem. Yeah. Let's start by overcoming the alienation that's been forced on all of us. You know, that's, um, that's a good starting point. You know, uh, we've been probably like, we've had like two generations born who have been like born into extreme amounts of alienation. So we can start off by trying to overcome that a little bit. But um, I think that brings us to the end of our questions, doesn't it? Yeah, thank you so much, Nicholas. It was um, so great to hear from your on-the-ground experience in Australia. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> I hope things get better. I, I hope that perhaps the resignations of um, of the Premier and the Deputy, Deputy Premier in um, New South Wales and per- perhaps potentially the resignation of your Premier in Victoria is a harbing- harbinger of maybe things wrapping up. Like it could be a sign that you know, maybe the ruling class has had enough or something. It's gone a little bit too long, too far and might be winding down. But I think in in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, it's winding down much slower than what any of us would hope. <laughs> so, so stay strong across the ocean there. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, good. Good, yeah. good luck and yeah they, they stay uh, uh what optimistic stay optimistic yeah, right? yeah. the political principle is hope <laughs> you know if there's no hope no like shut up you know, like settle down whatever yeah. <laughs> exactly okay cool